Okay, so it's eight o'clock. Again, welcome everyone. So good to have you uh, at this uh, first uh, Pew Team of Shavuot class. We have them uh, tomorrow evening and Thursday evening. Uh, during those classes, we value um, everyone's active participation and we encourage everyone uh, to turn on your video if you're able so we can see you. Uh, please feel free to ask questions either by unmuting yourself or by putting questions in the chat box here on Zoom or as a comment on Facebook if you're watching us live. Um, the poem Yetziv Bitgam, recited on the second day of Shavuot in connection with the Haftara, is an obscure but beautiful window into the religious world of medieval Ashkenaz, written by the great uh, Tosafist Rabenu Tam. In this class, we will read and unpack the poem in order to reflect on what it teaches about Shavuot and on the intellectually rich but also tragic period in which it was written. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Tzvi Novik. Dr. Novik is the Abrams Jewish Thought and Culture Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. His research focuses on early rabbinic literature and on early Jewish uh, liturgical, sorry if I'm messing up that word, <laughs> poetry. With that, I'll turn it to uh, Dr. Novik. So good to have you. Great, okay, thank you. Thank you very much and very nice to be here. Um, yeah, it's always a little bit uh, odd to be trying to, trying to teach a class over Zoom, especially to a, a whole, Assortment of uh, assortment of students from different places and backgrounds, but uh, we'll try our best. And yeah, let me um, reinforce that encouragement to participate. I welcome questions, comments. Uh, you can use the chat box, I suppose, if you'd like, or uh, also if you'd like to just uh, raise a hand using the participant function. I think I'll also notice that. So uh, please. Uh, uh, let's make this as uh, collaborative an exercise as Zoom allows. All right, so um, uh, I guess uh, let me let me begin. Um, well, I suppose when I begin by teaching a class at uh, my introduction to Bible at Notre Dame, uh, so I'm here in my office at Notre Dame, and when I do that, I begin by um, asking students to bracket out any preconceptions that they may have about the Bible. Uh, it's not a collection of children's stories. Its, its, mes its message is not simply be a good person. It doesn't speak in a single voice and so on. Uh, the task in that class is to make the familiar unfamiliar. Uh, in the case of this class, by contrast, our starting point is, I expect, largely unfamiliar. I, can't imagine that many people are coming in with settled views about Yatsiv Pitgam. Uh, the tune to which it's traditionally recited may be recognizable. That's Yatsiv Pitgam, Latudgam, Baribarivavan, Irin. So that may be familiar to some uh, from Shul, but I venture to say that for the most part, the text is simply a mystery, right? What is it? Why do we say it? What does it mean? Why is it an Aramaic? So Yatsif Pitgam is an Ashkenazi piyut. That is to say, it's a liturgical poem from the tradition of Jewish communities from medieval Christian Europe. I expect that the field of piyut as a whole may be foreign territory to some of you. Uh, in the recent, oh, 300 years, it's been in decline poems that had, been, that had been recited for hundreds of, year pre, hundreds of years previously have been banished over the course of uh, modernity 
to the fine print or to appendices or deleted altogether from Sidurim. Piyut has the reputation for being obscure, difficult to understand, simply too long, right? It's the sort of thing that prolongs the tefillah and Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, uh, or to borrow from the critique of Mozart in the movie Amadeus, too many words. Um, but in fact, Piyut is an amazing part of our heritage, a trove of beauty, of piety, of history. And in fact, Piyut has experienced something of a resurgence in recent years, especially in Israel, where it's been driven by Mizrahi influence. Uh, among Mizrahi Jews, Piyut retained into the modern period a lot more cultural cachet than it had in, um, in Western Europe and then in America. But enough about Piyut in general. We only have an hour, and so I want us to focus our attention on Yatsiv Pitgam. And I'll begin with the basics. I'm going to share a PowerPoint. Let's see. Here we go. I'm going to just full screen that so we can see. Mm. All right, we can all see it. Great. Okay. A Talmudist writes poetry on Yatsiv Pitgam and its world. Okay, so first the basics. As uh, Evie mentioned briefly in her introduction, and thank you for that, uh, this poem is recited on the second day of Shavuot, and it precedes the Haftarah. Uh, so the Haftarah, the prophetic reading for the second day of Shavuot, is from Chavakuk, the last verse of the second chapter and all of the third chapter. Chavakuk is also someone whom you probably um, don't have uh, many settled views on. Uh, the image on the right here, as Chavakuk is from, the, from Treasar, uh, from the uh, 12 smaller prophets, the minor prophets. Uh, Chavakuk, in this image on the right, Chavakuk is the one who is suspended by his hair in the air. Um, and below him is Daniel, who is in the lion's den. So Daniel in the lion's den is, is something that's more familiar to us but the story of Daniel in the lion's den in our Tanakh does not feature Chavakuk being suspended by his hair. There's uh, an addition to the book of Daniel in the Greek Bible, the Septuagint. And uh, in that version, Daniel is cast into the lion's den yet again, a second time. Uh, it's from an addition to Daniel called Bell and the Dragon, which is not at all related to Beauty and the Beast. Uh, it's a story of Daniel defeating uh, an idol uh, or two items that are worshipped. Anyhow, he gets thrown in the lion's den yet again, and an angel of God seizes Chavakuk by the hair. Chavakuk has just prepared some stew and some bread for reapers in Eretz Israel when he is seized by the hair by an angel of God who has him deliver this food to Daniel. Curiously, the text is more interested in what Daniel eats in the lion's den rather than how Daniel survives being eaten by the lions. In any case, that's Chavakuk, a little bit about Chavakuk. Um, that's the Haftarah for the second day of Shavuot. There was a custom of translating the Haftarah, reciting the Haftarah and interspersing the Hebrew recitation of the Haftarah with translation into Aramaic. Now, translation into Aramaic was a standard in an earlier period, both for the Torah and for the Nevi'im and for the Haftarah. Uh, but that practice died out, but it survived or possibly was reintroduced into Ashkenaz in the medieval period 
for two points in the liturgical calendar, basically. The seventh day of Pesach and Shavuot. And these are the two moments of theophany, the two greatest moments of divine appearance. Of course, we're familiar with the idea of Matan Torah, uh, the giving of the Torah and Shavuot as an instance of the appearance of God. But the seventh day of Pesach also celebrates a divine appearance, the appearance of God at the sea. Ra'atah uh, al-hayam, even a maidservant at the sea saw what Yechezkel did not see, say Chazal. And so that is also a moment of theophany. And so for those two moments, the seventh day of Pesach celebrating the splitting of the sea and Shavuot celebrating the giving of the, of the Torah, uh, these moments are kind of celebrated liturgically by the preservation of the, of the Targum, of rendering the Hebrew into Aramaic, uh, translating the Hebrew into a language that was familiar, more familiar to Jews than, Aram than Hebrew, namely Aramaic, of course, Aramaic now is less familiar to Jews than Hebrew, but at the time of Chazal, it was the spoken language. So you'd recite the Haftarah in Hebrew, translating it into Aramaic with the standard Aramaic translation, Targum Yonatan. And where does Yatsif Pitgam fit into this? Yatsif Pitgam is an introductory poem to the Aramaic translation. It's an introductory poem composed by Rabbeinu Tam in this case, and we'll get to Rabbeinu Tam in a moment. So that's what our poem is. It's, an, uh, it's a poem in Aramaic itself, and it's in Aramaic because it's introducing the Aramaic translation of the Haftarah for the second day of Shavuot. Nowadays, we've dropped the practice of translating the Haftarah into Aramaic in public. We don't have that anymore, but we've retained the introductory poem, Yatsif Pitgam. So it's kind of hanging there as a, an introduction to something that we no longer do. So it's a complicated liturgical setting in addition to being a complicated poem, but that's all I'll say for the time being about the liturgical setting. Of course, again, feel free to um, um, ask any questions you'd like either in the chat or with a hand raising. All right, okay, so that's uh, that's the basics of the liturgical occasion. Oh, we do have a hand. So Nathan, please. Did Rabbeinu Tam's community say the Targum for Haftarah? Uh, it's, yes, so in, in, the, in the medieval period, this was actually the practice, yes. So, so they did actually recite the Targum um, and uh, there was a, also a little bridge line in between the introductory poem and the actual Targum itself. Um, but so, but that practice dropped. Thanks, great question. Yeah, and Sherry. Uh, Sherry, I see, did you raise a hand? Oh no, okay, <laughs> all right, no problem. All right, okay, so Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam is actually the subject of a book that just came out literally a couple of months ago by Rami Reiner, Avram Reiner. Um, and that's the, the book that uh, you see on the left here about Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam is a famously combative figure. Um, and this is a, in particular a book about polemic. There's polemics with uh, other rabbis. Um, so a little bit about Rabbeinu Tam. This is Jacob ben Meir, Yaakov ben Meir, called Rabbeinu Tam because Yaakov Ishtam, Yaakov is known as a Ishtam. He lived in the 12th century and he lived in Northern France in a town called Rameru 
which still exists. We'll get to the location of that town in a moment. That'll be important. He is Rashi's grandson through Rashi's daughter. And he is a foundational Tosafist. Um, so the Tosafot who occupy uh, the outer margins, uh, margins of Aragmara, Rabbeinu Tam is uh, arguably, and it's not such a difficult argument, the most important of those Ba'aleha Tosafot. Okay, so this is a little bit about Rabbeinu Tam. And um, what, um, well, okay. Let me actually say a little bit more, just, just a, um, by way of background. And it's interesting. So this poem is designated for the second day of Shavuot. And it so happens that maybe the most traumatic event in Rabbeinu Tam's personal life happened on the second day of Shavuot. So the map that you have on the right here is of the second crusade. And you'll see the red dotted lines starting out from Paris. Those are overland armies of the Second Crusade, crusaders marching from Paris to Jerusalem. And Rameru, Rabbeinu Tam's hometown, is two hours almost due east of Paris and slightly south of it, exactly on the line of those Second Crusade, uh, of those crusaders. And what you have over here on the left is an excerpt from, not from, uh, from, not from Rabbeinu Tam itself, um, but from Rabbeinu Tam's younger contemporary, Rabbi Ephraim of Bonn, describing an incident that happened to Rabbeinu Tam during this period in 1146. On, on the second day of the festival of Shavuot, the erring ones from the land of France, these crusaders, gathered to Rameru and entered the house of our master Jacob, may he live, and took everything that was in his house. And they tore a Torah, a scroll of the Torah before him, and they took him and conveyed him to the field. And they rendered judgments against him on account of his religion and plotted to kill him. And they inflicted five wounds on his head, for they said, you are the greatest one among Israel. Therefore, let us extract from you the vengeance of the hanged one and wound you just as you inflicted five wounds on our God. The five wounds over there being the wounds on, the, on Jesus's hands and feet from the nails of the cross and then also the spear in his side. And his pure soul was close to expiring, were it not for the mercies of our creator, who took pity on his Torah. There was a passing uh, nobleman, and Rabbeinu Tam managed to um, persuade him, bribe him really, according to this report, to convince these people gathered here to, um, to let him go. Uh, and um, this, this individual said he would persuade Rabbeinu Tam to convert, um, but he, um, he, he helped him. Um, so the, uh, this, uh, this is an event that happened on the second day of Shavuot, and uh, no, no reason to think that it's connected in any particular way to this poem, to Yatsiv Pitgam, but it does provide some context for Rabbeinu Tam's life, and in particular, the expressions of, um, of desire for God's vengeance upon those who deny him, Upon, um, upon the enemies of Israel that are in the poem, as we'll see in a moment, become more intelligible against the background of this and like events uh, that were happening in the lifetime of Rabbeinu Tam. All right, and so uh, let's see. So this is the text of it. I just want to describe by way of prelude my, my argument, what, what my argument is going to be over here. W one of the things that makes piyut particularly hard 
is that it's extremely elusive. That is to say, usually every line and often almost every word of a piyut is an allusion to a biblical text or a passage from rabbinic literature or a passage from rabbinic literature about a biblical text. And this is very different from English poetry where allusion is only occasionally central to what a poem means. And uh, what I wanna claim, and I think it's a novel claim, is that the poem Yatsiv Pitgam only becomes uh, fully intelligible when we appreciate the pattern of allusions here. And it is a pattern. Rabbeinu Tam isn't uh, kind of uh, grabbing this biblical passage here and that rabbinic text there. Rather, what he's doing instead is offering a poetic commentary on, of a sort on a single sugya in the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, and in that respect, it's really fascinating to read this poem alongside Rabbeinu Tam's main work, which is in fact dialectical Talmud commentary. Uh, if someone, I'll get to that question in a second, Nathan. Yeah, so if someone kind of wrote a, uh, or, uh, a poem about a Talmudic sugya, I think uh, we'd think of this as something characteristically modern, kind of a, a new way of finding religious meaning in a legal text. But in a certain sense, that is what Rabbeinu Tam is doing in Yatsif Pitgam. And that's what I'd like to show as we work through this poem. So Nathan, did you have a hand or no? Yes, uh, um, it's more of a comment and you answered it. I was about to ask, um, uh, so are all these allusions present in the Talmud because, and then you answered it's, it could be mapped onto one sugya and mm -hmm. that's very interesting, especially, I don't, I'm not as learned as I'd like to be. Um, was it Rabbeinu Tam who is quote, who is the Baal Tosfot who says that, um, you can fulfill your obligation of learning um, uh, of learning um, one third mikra, one third um, uh, whatever it, it is by just learning the Babylonian Talmud. Right, 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 Babylonian Talmud? The, right. The Babylonian Talmud itself kind of characterizes itself as kind of mingling all of these things, and so uh, yeah. Well, so we'll see I, I, as as we kind of work through it. I don't want to. I don't. I'm not going to be making the claim that every single allusion in this uh, in this poem is to this particular sugya, um, but there is a pattern of allusion to the sugya. There are allusions to lots of other texts too. So yeah, we'll see it kind of worked out as we go. All right, so I'm not gonna read the whole text in Aramaic, uh, but what I'd like us to see over here, I, I am gonna read the whole text in my own English translation, but what I'd like us to see over here in the Aramaic before we get to the translation, is the form. So first of all, we have an acrostic. If you look at the initial letters of each line, you have Yaakov the Rabbi Meir, Yaakov the son of Rabbi Meir, plus four additional lines. So that's the first part. That, that's how we know that uh, Rabbeinu Tam, one of the ways in which we know uh, that Rabbeinu Tam wrote it. But you can also see over here that it's there's a monorhyme, meaning every single line ends with the same syllable, in this case, rin. Uh, there are also internal rhymes, yatsiv pitgam, la'at udgam. Each line has its own internal rhyme. And then there's also meter. Now, this is something, right, this is something that should be familiar to us from English poetry. In English poetry, the most common meter is iambic, uh, well, classically, anyhow, is iambic pentameter. Ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. Hebrew poetry traditionally does not have meter, like biblical poetry, Tehillim, 
right? There's no meter. The, the lines are roughly balanced. You have parallel lines that are roughly balanced in terms of the number of stresses, uh, but there isn't a strict syllabic meter. Syllabic meter, the idea of strict syllabic meter only arises in the 10th century um, in a Spanish context, in the Sephardic context, uh, and it's systematized. Uh, Dunash ibn Labrat is the figure kind of particularly closely associated with this. And then it moves over, influences Ashkenaz and Paitanim, liturgical poets writing in Ashkenaz under Spanish influence, begin to write metrical poems also. And uh, that's helpful to keep in mind because uh, sometimes we think of Ashkenaz and Sfarad as kind of uh, hermetically sealed off from each other or separate worlds in the medieval period. Um, and it's true to a certain extent, uh, but it's also true that there's a lot of cultural interchange and Rabbeinu Tam himself exchanged letters with uh, one of the more important bridges between the cultures of Ashkenaz and Sfarad in this period, namely Avraham ibn Ezra. Avraham ibn Ezra expressed shock that you have a, uh, a Frenchman writing metrical poetry. Um, and so what's the meter here? I don't want to get into the into it in detail, but think about Dror Yikra, which was written by that figure I just mentioned, Dunash ibn Labrat. Uh, Dror Yikra, short, long, 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 Leven Imbat, short, long, 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 Veyin Tzorchem, short, long, 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 Kemo Vavat, short, long, long, long. Likewise over here, Betur Talga, Nehor Shraga. So uh, you have short syllable followed by three long syllables, short syllable followed by three long syllables, etc. Okay, we don't need to get into the meter uh, in, in great detail, uh, but the meter itself is important evidence of that kind of cultural exchange, Svarad Ashkenaz in the medieval period. Okay, so now let's read through this poem in English. So this is my own English translation, and then we'll uh, work through it and see what's going on over here. Okay. Firm is the word of the sign and mark among myriad myriads of watchers. Where does he dwell? Amid the numbers that you four mountains. In front of him, into its basins, a river of fires extends and streams. On a mountain of snow is a flaming light and flashes of fire and torches. He made and saw what is in the dark, for with him lights reside. He spies things distant without forgetting and to him are revealed hidden things. The translation tries to preserve basically the rhythm of the poem, and it's quite literal, very literal, but it doesn't make any attempt to preserve the rhyme. I seek from him, we're on line seven over here, I seek from him his leave, and after him of these men, who know law and Mishnah, and Tosefta, Sifra, and Sifrei. May the king who lives forever and ever bestow fruit on the people that seek him. It is said of them, they will be as sand and innumerable be like the dusts. White as sheep may their dales become, may their presses drip with wine. Grant their desire and brighten their faces. Let them shine like the light of mornings. And to me give strength and raise your eyes. See the enemies that deny you. May they be as straw inside a brick. May they be silent as stone ashamed. When I arise and I translate, with the words of the choicest of scribes, Jonathan, that most humble man, we thus render him graces. All right, okay. So, um, curious about any uh, initial thoughts over here 
um, about the structure of the poem, about the meaning, or even about allusions. What texts maybe do you see Rabbeinu Tam here alluding to? Uh, yeah, Chaya? Uh, one thing that I just noticed as being strange, a lot of the things I was like translating to Hebrew in my head as like, how does this sound in Tehillim or things like that? But just that last verse where he seems to call Jonathan that most humble man, whereas Moshe is explicitly called the most humble man in, in the Torah. Ah. I noticed that was strange. Um, that was the main thing that like- Great, okay, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so you can see uh, over here, um, it's uh, right in the Aramaic, it's Yehonatan Gvar Invitan. Um, yeah, uh, uh, right. Uh, oh, most, okay. Maybe Sorry, that, it's okay. most humble as in very humble. Sorry, my brain yeah, for right, most humble right. and thought Moshe, but it could just be a humble person. Well, no, that's, and that's right. I'm assuming. Right. No, no, that, that's great. So, yes, so some have, uh, some actually translate this so that the line is a reference to, to Moshe. And it's the, the idea here is that Rabbi Nutam is referencing the Torah as the Torah of Moshe, but then this seems like the most likely translation. And what uh, Rabbi Nutam is referring to here is Jonathan is Yonatan, Targum Yonatan. This translation into Aramaic that this poem is a prelude to is attributed in the Gemara to Yonatan ben Uziel. Um, and so he's saying he's going to be using the words of Yonatan. He's going to be citing the words of Yonatan and describing him as humble. Now, why exactly should Yonatan be described as humble? That's a little bit of a puzzle. Um, uh, um, uh, Yair or Jay or both? <laughs> Just a, a notation question. What is, what is the meaning? I mean, traditionally in, uh, in, in poetry, those, uh, uh, the, those are line breaks. And, and uh, I'm just wondering about what the, 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 the single and double. Um, yeah, great, great, right. Yeah, so right, in, in, a, in a poem, right, typically that those two line, um, slants would indicate, right, a caesura and a line. Uh, so yes, so each line divides in two, divides into two. Each, each half line has two feet. Uh, and then in the first half of the line, but not in the second half of the line, the two feet rhyme with each other. Uh, so that explains why you have the first half of the line is divided into two, whereas the second half of the line is not divided into two. Great, thanks for that question. But just before I get to your question, Beth, uh, I see your hand. Just about Yonatan, it, it's uh, one suggestion was made by, um, this is um, Yitzchak Maiselis, his uh, edition of Rabbeinu Tam's poems. He suggests that Rabbeinu Tam is alluding to the Gemara that's uh, where God is angry at Yonatan ben Uziel for translating the Nevi'im into Aramaic because that makes it more accessible and the secrets of the prophets then will become more known. And Rabbein, and Yonatan ben Uziel responds to God and he says, uh, um, uh, you, you know that asiti, I did not do it for my own honor, uh, and not for the honor of the house of my father, uh, but for your honor, God. Uh, so that, um, division, not multiply in Israel, this one understanding the verse this way, that one understanding the verse that way. And so there he's, he is presented as humble in that he says he's done it not for his own sake to glorify himself, but for God's glory. Um, Beth. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the first line. Mm -hmm. um, what does sign and mark allude to? And also myriad myriads of watchers. Does that occur in Tanakh someplace? 
Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, great, great question. Okay, yeah, so, so every, every word uh, of this line is, uh, it's, it's, Piyut is dense. Uh, it doesn't need to be dense. Some Piyut team are not dense, but most Piyut team are. This one certainly is. So I capitalize sign and mark because sign and mark are references to God. So what we have over here is, uh, I'll go to the Aramaic, um, at and degam. Um, so uh, let's put aside for the moment yatsif pitgam, the words yatsif pitgam, firm is the word. What does that even mean? Uh, but at udgam are references to God. And this is, uh, and, and Ribo Rivavan is, occurs in Daniel. Remember, this is a poem in Aramaic. So the, the parts of Tanakh that are going to be especially important for someone writing a piyut in Aramaic are Aramaic portions of Tanakh. Most of Tanakh is in Hebrew, of course, but there are parts of it in Aramaic, in Sefer Daniel, in uh, Ezra Nehemiah. Um, and so Ribo Rivavan occurs in Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel chapter seven. What this is, and um, I'll just kind of uh, get into this briefly, just so that we get a sense of the density of the illusions, but I wanna focus on particular illusions, but this one is not among the ones that I wanna focus on, but again, just to give a sense of the density of the illusions. So what we have over here, the words Ribo Rivavan are an allusion to, are taken from Daniel seven, and we'll describe in a moment or later on while Daniel 7 is important. But what we have here is an allusion to a, a passage in the Babylonian Talmud that interprets two verses dealing with involving revivot, involving many. Uh, God atami revot kodesh, mi revivot kodesh, God coming from ten thousands of ten thousands of holiness in Deuteronomy 33, and dagul me um, God as notable, among 10,000 from the Song of Songs. These are combined to say that God exists among, uh, God dwells among the angels, the Kodesh, the Holy Ones, um, but he is on the rabbinic interpretation, notable among them. It's easy to see God because God, despite being among these angels is markedly different from them. Uh, so this is wordplay on two verses in Deuteronomy and in the Song of Songs that are in turn being brought into conversation with the book of Daniel. The Irene, the watchers are a class of angels. So we could spend an hour unpacking each line, <laughs> but I'm gonna phrase on that. And if you don't mind, Jonathan, I'm also gonna hold off on the question because I do wanna make sure that we get to, so, so, uh, um, so I wanna uh, kind of work with these kind of first general impressions and questions uh, about Yatsif Pitkan, but to make sure that we get to uh, the key claims that I wanna make about Rabbeinu Tam's interaction with a specific sugya. Okay, so, so first of all, what are these initial words? Yatsif pitgam. I translated it as firm is the word. Firm is the word of the sign and mark. But what does that mean? What is, what is Rabbeinu Tam saying? Firm is the word. So Maizalus, whom I mentioned earlier, said firm is the commandment. Uh, the aser hadibrot can be translated, what, uh, well, we all know it from Pesach, asara dibraya. Uh, right, and so, so the Dibraya, that's one way of kind of rendering it into Aramaic, uh, but you can also render it as uh, Pitgamaya. Uh, so, so maybe this is a reference to the commandments. Um, Jonah Frankel, the author of a very important scholarly Machzorim, um, filled with Piyut commentary uh, by him, we'll return to him in a moment or later, uh, he takes an entirely different route because he doesn't really see 
what that could mean. Why would why would Rabbeinu Tam be, be talking about the Aserat Adibrot here, the Ten Commandments? And he says that Yatsiv is actually from Tzvi, from the Aramaic word Tzvi, meaning um, desire. Um, oh, I see. Um, okay, yes, I see that right. We get we get the argue, um, uh, the chat right. So so those of you, if I if I'm not um, able to. Um, get to the question, there's also the chat to put to put comments and observations in. So yeah, let me just note that. I just saw we have some comments in the chat. So anyhow, so Yona Frankel says, Yatsiv uh, means desirable. And so this is an opening kind of prayer. May the word be found desirable. So Rabbeinu Tam is beginning by saying, may my poem be found desirable. Um, so maybe that's what's, what, what's going on over here. Um, in fact, I think neither of these is correct. If you look, if you just search all of rabbinic literature, you'll find one and only one place where the phrase Yatsif Pitgam occurs, and that is in Targum Yonatan, in Yonatan's translation to Jeremiah 46.18. Jeremiah is uh, Yirmiyahu, right? Yirmiyahu, it's, a, it's in the middle of a prophecy against the Egyptians and the fall of Egyptians at the hand of the Babylonians. Uh, and the Pasuk here says, uh, as Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea, it shall come. Um, meaning this destruction shall come. And Targum Yonatan translates, Just as the word is firm, that Tabor is among the mountains and Carmel is by the sea, so shall Egypt's breaking come. Right, so just as we all know that Har Tavor is among the mountains and the mountain ranges, um, and in the in the um, and and Carmel is by the sea, right? Because Har Carmel is by the sea, um, so it's certain that Egypt's breaking shall come. So so it seems that Rabbeinu Tam is is borrowing the words Yatsif Pitgam from this translation, Aramaic translation of Yirmiyahu. The word is firm. But now, why would he be, why would why would he be plucking these words from the middle of a uh, of a prophecy by Yirmiyahu against the Egyptians? What does that have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with something because of the rabbinic interpretation of this pasuk, and this is a rabbinic interpretation of uh, that occurs in Babylonian Talmud Megillah 29a. And I'll just read the English. It was taught in a Brita. Rabbi El Azar HaKapar says, in the future, the synagogues and the study halls in Babylonia will be transported and reestablished in Eretz Israel, As it is stated, surely like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea, so he shall come. And are these matters not inferred through an a fortiori argument? Just as Tavor and Carmel, which came only momentarily to study Torah, were relocated and established in Eretz Israel in reward for their actions, all the more so should the synagogues and study halls in Babylonia, in which the Torah is read and disseminated, be located, relocated to Eretz Israel. So this verse is being read not as, the way this verse is being read here is to say that Tavor and Carmel came. What does that mean that they came? Where were they coming from? Where did they go to? So this verse is assuming that at Har Sinai, at the time of the giving of the Torah, all of the mountains wanted to be present, even wanted to be the one on which the Torah was given. And Carmel and Tavor showed up among other mountains. And because they showed up from wherever they showed up at first, God planted them in the land of Israel, from which we can learn, we can infer by a fortiori argumentation, by Kalva Homer, all the more so 
will the synagogues and the study halls of Bavel, the Bate Kanesiot Uvate Midrashot of Bavel, be transplanted into Eretz Israel because these are the places in which the Torah is disseminated. So what's going on over here then, coming back to our poem, so when Rabbi Nutan is alluding in our poem to this verse, when he's borrowing the words of Yonatan, of Targum Yonatan to this verse, he is alluding to this passage in the Babylonian Talmud, which is a reference to Matan Torah. And what is he saying implicitly? Firm is the word. So what I want to suggest is that what he's saying implicitly is that um, is he, he's implicitly celebrating the synagogues and the academies, the, the Beit Knesset especially, of the exile, including not just Babylonia, but his own Beit Knesset, his own Beit Midrash in Ashkenaz, right? And suggesting implicitly that the Torah study that happens there holds out the promise of redemption, All right? Okay, and now, how does that claim over here, which is just kind of hinted at in that, in that, in the use of those words, firm is the word. How does that work out in, in terms of the rest of this passage? Let's just looking at these first two lines. Firm is the word of the sign and mark among myriad myriads of watchers. Where does he dwell? Amid the numbers that you four mountains. So in order to kind of figure out kind of uh, how this implicit claim for the redemptive power of Torah study is working out over here, we need to look at the second line. Where does he dwell? Where does God dwell? Amid the numbers that hew four mountains. Well, what does that mean? What's the numbers that hew four mountains? That's also pretty mysterious. Um, Abigail, you've got a uh, or question, yes. Um, I had a suggestion about the four mountains. Yes, please. Um, so the word that he's using is Arba'aturin, is that a reference to the tour, as in like the precursor to the Shulchan Aruch? Oh, well, that's a, that's a great idea. Uh, the trouble, though, is that the tour postdates Rabbeinu Tam. Uh, so the Arba Turin are in turn a reference to the, uh, the itself. The words uh, right, Rabbi, uh, the, the tour is the is the work of the uh, of the of the side of the of the of the rush. And so we're talking here a couple of centuries or uh, after a little more than a couple of centuries after Rabbeinu Tam. Uh, but th that name, that title of his work, is in turn a reference to um, uh, to the four, um, well, possibly a reference to the four um, lines of stones on the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, or maybe even, I don't actually know, uh, can't say in detail, I don't know all that much about uh, uh, the Torah's logic over there, but maybe even a reference to the passage that I want to look at in a moment. So let's let's turn to that, let's return to that. So here's one suggestion. This is the suggestion by Yona Frankel, whom we mentioned earlier. Um, he is the author of this Machzor, um, full of the, all of the traditional PU team and his commentary to them. And so he, in his commentary to Yatsif Pitkam, he suggests that the reference is to an Aramaic Targum on the Book of Psalms. And in there, there's this tradition, uh, this tradition about the giving of the Torah. Um, and um, uh, that I mentioned in, uh, earlier, where all of the mountains want God to give the Torah on them, uh, and God says, no, you're, you're too high, you're arrogant, and God rejects them. Um, and over here, that rejecting is, uh, is 
uh, phrased in terms of rendering invalid, it pesilu, which is in bold over there. And that Yona um, Frankel sees it pesilu, he sees over there an echo of it in the um, in that second line, de fasilin arbaaturin, who render invalid the four mountains. So on Yona Frankel's reading, the second line should be translated as follows. Where does he dwell? Amid the numbers that rejected four mountains. Meaning where does God dwell? Amid the angels who rejected those other mountains and said, no, God is going to give the Torah on Sinai. And so on this interpretation, the first two lines are parallel, right? So um, you have God who is among myriad, myriads of watchers. He's, he's surrounded by 10,000s of 10,000s of these angels called the watchers. Where does he dwell? In Hebrew, where does he dwell? Among the angels, the angels who rejected those other mountains and said, no. Uh, God is going to give the Torah on Har Sinai. Now, the trouble with this interpretation, though, it's a nice interpretation. There's definitely some connection to the story about the uh, invalidating of these other mountains or these other mountains competing to be the ones on which the Torah is given. We already saw a connection with that verse from Yirmiyahu. But the trouble is that this tradition doesn't make any mention of angels invalidating the mountains. It also doesn't mention four mountains in particular. So it's very difficult to read amid the numbers that rejected four mountains, meaning God dwells amid the angels that rejected four mountains, because there's no tradition of the angels rejecting the four mountains. It's God himself. Um, yeah, Ruth. Uh, sorry, but you're on mute. You're on mute is kind of like the mantra yeah, of the Zoom right. ever. Right. So, sorry about that. Um, but the word, the, the word, it's not really numbers, it's minyana, like mm -hmm. in the minyan. So either it's the ten dibrot, mm. or it's, I don't know, his, his minyan of, um, you know, his holy court, something like that. Well, well, right, right, right. So yeah, it's literally the, 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 the number, the, the word here in Aramaic is minyana. That's right, his, his minions, right? I mean, um, minions, not in the sense of like the minions, the yellow minions or his, uh, yeah, but the, the, the minyan of like a davening minion, right? Yes, so exactly, right, his, his quora, um, his, his groups. Um, so yes, but, but what are those groups? Are they angels or are they something else? So in fact, I think it's, it's clear that this is not a reference to the angels. It's a reference to this story. And this story appears in that same sugya in the Babylonian Talmud, in Megillah 28b, Chavchet Amud Bet. The previous allusion was to Chavchet Amud Aleph, the continuation of the same sugya. It's a great story. Let me read the story here. Reish Lakish, the great Amora, was traveling along the road when he reached a deep puddle of water. A certain man, right, in Babylon, you had a lot of canals, right, because irrigation is not, you, really, you, can't, you don't have rain, but you irrigate from, from canals, and so you can see how there would be a lot of, uh, the situation might arise. A certain man came and placed him upon his shoulders, and be, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Rish <laughs> Lakish is in Israel, the land of Israel, but it's being told in the Babylonian Talmud, so they may be using their setting, but Rish Lakish is, of course, in uh Roman Palestine, not in Babylonia. Okay, a certain man came and placed him upon his shoulders and began transferring him to the other side. Right, that's convenient, that's very nice. Rish Lakish said to him, right? So you imagine Rish Lakish being born on this guy's shoulders, 
uh, and they're crossing the this large pool of water. Uh, and Reish Lakish uh, is asking him as they cross, uh, he's asking him about his Jewish literacy. Have you read the Bible? Uh, he said to him, I have read it. He then asked him, have you studied the Mishnah? He answered him, I have studied four orders of the Mishnah. Reish Lakish then said to him, you have hewn these four mountains, Psaltlach Arba'aturin, and yet you bear the weight of the son of Lakish upon your shoulders, right? You shouldn't be carrying me. Uh, you're, uh, yeah, you're too, you're too <laughs> learned uh, to be carrying me. Um, um, so throw the son of Lakish into the water, right? You should throw me into the water. The man said to Reish Lakish, it is pleasing for me to serve the master in this way, right? Nevertheless, I do want to do this. And Reish Lakish said to him, if so, learn from me. Reish Lakish saying here, all right, if you're gonna carry me, then at least let me teach you a halakha. In this way, I can consider you my student and we can justify the fact that you're carrying me. All right, but here we have this phrase, uh, you have yun for mountains, meaning, you, and uh, here it's a, it's a metaphor for uh, four orders of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is divided into six orders. So this man has studied four orders. He has yun four mountains. Um, and so um, I think more likely then, if we go back to uh, the translation, where does he dwell amid the numbers that you four mountains what is this line saying? Where does God dwell? Amid the numbers, meaning amid the numbers, the, the, the populace, of, populace of sages who you four mountains, who study the Torah, and first uh, in particular, study the Mishnah. Uh, and so what is this couplet saying? Um, again, keep in mind that firm is the word. That firm is the word. The words firm is the word there are an allusion to this idea of redemptive Torah study. Right, firm is the word. God promised Har Carmel and Har Tavor, because you came to Matan Torah, I'm gonna to plant you in Eretz Yisrael. And likewise, the academies, Yatsif Pitgama, firm is the word of God. You can be sure that likewise, the academies and the synagogues in which Torah is studied in Babel will be transplanted in the future to Eretz Yisrael. And likewise, Rabbeinu Tam is implicitly saying, so too, the, of course, the synagogues and academies of our own Ashkenaz, where Torah is studied, uh, and Rabbi Tam's method of study really was one in which he kind of uh, uh, didn't kind of treat the Gemara as something to be uh, kind of compiled into halacha and kind of be done with and then move past, but rather uh, a kind of an inspiration to carry the process of the Gemara forward questions and answers in the manner of the Gemara. So that's firm is the word. So the point is, God dwells, God is among myriad, myriads of watchers. God is among the angels. But where does he dwell? Where is his true dwelling? It's amid the numbers that you four mountains. His true dwelling is amid the Chachamim, is in the Batek Neset, is in the Beit Midrash. Uh, so it's this kind of bold contrast to claim Yes, God has his angelic retinue, but his true dwelling place is among us in this Beit Knesset. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Jay, or your ear. I actually have a meta question, so maybe we'll just wait till the end. Or... Uh, well, why don't you ask it and I'll see if I can answer it briefly. Okay. Well, it's a weird connection. I, I write poetry and some of my poetry has certain assumptions of literacy and I can struggle with, with how much do I tell. And this, I, don't, I wouldn't even have a chance. So my question is, who's the audience of this piyut? If it takes this much knowledge and understanding to unpack it, who was he writing it for? 
Yeah, this is, this is a great question. It's a, it's a great question about Piyut in general. And uh, it's definitely, I mean, this is a kind of a bravura performance that uh, kind of could only have been understood. I mean, I mean, you, I presume, are writing in English. Uh, Rabino Tam is writing poetry in Aramaic here. And um, I mean, only someone who had studied, uh, who was a kind of deeply immersed in the Bavli, uh, could even understand the words of the poem, uh, because he's speaking to an audience that, uh, you know, there was struggle with Hebrew literacy, let alone, not struggle with, but they would acquire Hebrew literacy through tefillah, uh, through Tanakh, um, but, but only advanced students would acquire any kind of serious Aramaic literacy. So let alone all of the illusions, um, there's, uh, there's the, um, um, uh, there's there are the words itself. So he's writing. He's he's certainly writing for a very learned audience. We know. I mean, I, the, the Piyut commentary was written at this time also. So you have rabbis writing. Not Rabbi Nutan himself. We don't know of it. But other rabbis, contemporaries, are writing Piyut commentary on earlier poems. Poems like from Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Khalir, Khalir's poetry. Um, and but within, um, I think it's less than a century. They were already writing commentaries on poems by Rabbeinu Tam and others. So it's not like this was ever very transparent. It's not so, like so that begs the question. Excuse me, but that begs a bigger question, yeah. which is if if he's essentially writing to an elite audience, yes, why did it become part of the liturgy? Um, right. Well, uh, yes, that is a, that is a great question. Uh, I suppose. Uh, right. The question is who determines the liturgy? Right. Is is the liturgy really kind of a? I mean, it's popular in the sense that it's recited by everyone. Um, but is it popular in the sense that it's the kind of the product of everyone? And, you know, also Aramaic itself kind of by this period certainly has a patina of mystery in it. It's not a coincidence that the Zohar was written in Aramaic also kind of because it has a, a, a the language has a patina of mystery about it. And so uh, incomprehension is not necessarily uh, a bad thing. Uh, and tefillah, right, if tefillah is too transparent, I. I don't know. It's funny, kind of. At Notre Dame, sometimes I'm asked to, you know, they have uh, blessings or prayers to open meetings, uh, and occasionally, you know, very ecumenical here, uh, very, uh, very uh, uh, um, uh, welcoming of uh, of Jews and kind of affirming of the Jewish tradition. And so, occasionally, I've been asked to offer an opening prayer, uh, and I always feel very uncomfortable praying in English. Uh, it just seems too too transparent. I'm, I'm going I'm to say words that I speak. Uh, so I think I think kind of the incomprehensibility of it could be part of the attraction of it. Um, but also, um, also I mean, it, it, we should probably kind of think about the relationship between um, the uh, the kind of the deep learning that's implicit in this poem and the whole and the whole idea uh, and the idea that the poem itself is celebrating that learning. Um, so. Uh, and yes, it's true that only the, the most elite of audience is going to be able to unpack this. Um, but um, but nevertheless, this is the Torah. If you're, if you're the... arguing for incomprehensibility of prayer, you've just saved American Jewry. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, it, it, this is in modernity. Of course, this has been a major uh, a major question uh, with, uh, with with reform and, uh, and, and reforming of liturgy. Of course, um, Beth, maybe a quick uh, a quick question because I want to make sure to get to a couple of other allusions over here. Yep. Um, given the time frame, mm -hmm. wouldn't they have been uh, taking an awful lot of uh, 
as their exemplars Arabic poetry of the era mm -hmm. and what the Muslims were doing? Um, well, Jews in, in, in Spain were, were, were extremely, uh, very influenced by um, Arabic poetry. Arabic poetry was, uh, was the, the kind of um, central uh, sort of cultural um, capital in this courtly culture mm -hmm. in say medieval Cordoba, the golden age of Spain. And so Jews living there were immensely influenced, uh, but in Ashkenaz, yeah, which is our context, uh, less so, but indirectly. So for example, the, the metered poetry, this idea of right, short, long, 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 short, long, 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 this rigid metrical poetry is ultimately traceable to Arabic poetics. That, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, is Rabbeinu Tam too far north to have a, a strong influence from uh, the Arabic poetry? Um, yes, it, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be direct. Uh, only indirect. Um, right. I mean, it's just uh, there's the there's the absolute language barrier. He wouldn't have known uh, any Arabic, unlike um, unlike um, someone like Abraham Ibn Ezra, who who was certainly entirely uh, versed in it and spoke it. Um, all right. Okay. So let me just. Um, uh, let me see over here. Uh, I want to get to right uh, other allusions to uh, to the same sugya. So this sugya, and let me say a little bit more about the sugya. So this sugya in the in Megillah. So Bab, the Bab, what is the Babylonian Talmud doing over here? In Tractate Megillah, um, there is a Mishnah that deals with the question of a synagogue. What kinds of things you're allowed to do and not allowed to do in a synagogue? Right, you can't use it as a shortcut. Um, you're not supposed to take shelter in a synagogue. Um, in uh, in case of rain, uh, and so in the the in the Bavli, um, this Mishnah becomes an occasion for discussing the sanctity of the synagogue in general. And but in particular, and this happens actually both in the Bavli and in the Yerushalmi on this Mishnah. The claim is that this the synagogue is important not only as a place of prayer, but also, and even especially, as a place of study. And so let's just look at, at these couple of more passages from Bavi Megillah. Uh, there was a certain man who used to study halacha, the sifra, and the sifra, and the tosefta, and he died. People came and said to Rav Nachman, let the master eulogize him. He said to them, how can I eulogize him? Should I say, alas, the basket filled with books is lost? So this is kind of a rather cruel dig, uh, right, to say that this person kind of he he knew these books, but he didn't really know their meaning. Uh, right, we're doing, dealing dealing here with a very kind of competitive scholastic culture. Uh, but this line is is clearly um, alluded to as well. Right, this man knew halacha, the sifra, and the sifre and the tosefta. Rabbi Nutam alludes to this in line eight over here. I seek from him his leave. Right, so Rabbi Nutam is asking the permission of God to recite the Aramaic translation of the Haftarah, and after him. After seeking leave of God, I seek leave of these men, meaning the sages in the audience, who know law and Mishnah and Tosefta, Sifra and Sifre. So he's alluding to this other line in the Sugya over here. And then in the continuation, it was taught in a Braita. Um, well, okay, I'll just summarize this because I see our time is limited. Um, right, that the teaching over here is that God joins Israel in exile. He joined them in Egypt. He was with them in other exiles, and he was with them in Babylonia. And so then the Gemara follows up and asks, all right, well, where, where is God in Babylonia? Uh, where is God? Um, uh, Abaye said, 
in the ancient synagogue of Hutzal and in the synagogue that was destroyed and rebuilt in the Harda'ah. God resides in those two particular synagogues. Um, and so Rava says, he interprets uh, Psalm 90. The Psalm says, Ma'on um, right? God, you have been a dwelling place for us. What is that dwelling place? It's the synagogues and the study halls. And Abaye said, initially I used to study Torah in my home and I only prayed in the synagogue. But then I heard this interpretation, Hashem ahafti ma'on beitecha. Lord, I love the habitation of your house, uh, ma'on. And so then I turned to study Torah in the synagogue. And so there are these two interpretations of ma'on, the word ma'on, dwelling, as a reference to the synagogue, and specifically the synagogue as a place of Torah study. And that's, again, alluded to by Rabbi Nutam. Where does he dwell? Or in, in Aramaic, ane, ane. Where is his an? Ain nun. Where is his an? Ain nun. Ane, ana. Uh, and that, I think, is an allusion to the ma'on, the dwelling that Rava and Abaye interpret as references to uh, the synagogues in Babylon, where in Babylonia and Babel, where Torah should be studied. And so what do we have over here? So we have then this piyut, and we've really, I mean, the, 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 the allusions to the sugya in, the, in Babli Megillah are concentrated in the first two lines and in the eighth line, but they really structure the poem as a whole. The point over here then is that God's true dwelling place is among us when we study Torah, and especially when we study Torah in the synagogue, as we are doing when we uh, recite uh, the Aramaic translation, when we study the Haftarah and translate it into Aramaic. And there's a redemptive power to that. That is what is going to redeem us and to bring us to the land of Israel. And you can look, by way of conclusion, just look at the similarity here between lines three and four on the one hand and lines 11 and 12 on the other. So God's dwelling place is described, and these lines in lines three and four are almost directly taken from Daniel chapter seven. In front of him into its basins, a river of fire extends and streams on a mountain of snow is a flaming light and flashes of fire and torches. And what is the future going to look like for Israel led by these sages? This is line 11 and 12. White as sheep, may their dales become, may their presses drip with wines, grant their desire and brighten their faces, let them shine like the light of mornings. So he envisions a future, and this is based on the Aramaic translation to the bracha for Yehuda, chachlili enayin ulven shinayin mechalav. But we have here again the whiteness, white as sheep. We have here the shining, brighten their faces, let them shine like the light of mornings. Uh, and so we have here a certain similarity between the, the very throne room of God with its uh, mountain of snow, its whiteness, uh, and its bright and flaming torches, and this future that's envisioned for Israel, uh, and in particular Israel as led by these sages, which uh, has mountains that are white as sheep, white with produce, uh, white with the, the, um, with the wool of sheep, uh, and faces shining like the, sh like the light of mornings. Uh, so in sum, um, we can see in the Atsiv Pitgam um, a kind of poignant sort of theology of exile. Right? The poem is implicitly suggesting God's true home is not among the angels, uh, rather it is wherever Israel is, and especially wherever they study Torah, 
and especially the Beit Knesset, insofar as it is a place not only of tefillah, but also of Torah study. Uh, all right, so I know Zoom is, is challenging. The hour is relatively late, so I don't, uh, I don't want to overstay my welcome. So uh, I'm going to pause there, stop there. Uh, um, I hope I've given a sense of the, the density of, the, of this, of this piyut, but also its beauty and its theological significance. And then also this more kind of innovative claim that Rabbeinu Tam is sort of um, um, alluding in a sort of systematic way to a specific sugya in the Bavli. Uh, in doing so, I hope I've also suggested that reading this piyutim is actually helpful or, or illuminating uh, as an exercise really in uh, understanding the Gemara and in how these great Tosafists like Rabbeinu Tam understood the Gemara. So thank you very much for joining. I really appreciate, again, joining at, at, at this late hour uh, and on so obscure a topic. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Novik, and thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. So good to have you. Um, I, I, just, I, just, I just I saw someone asked about sharing the PowerPoint. I, might, I'll, I can send that to you, and you, will that kind of accompany the archived recording of this? Uh, yes. Uh -huh. okay. Yeah, so when we have uh, on uh, Drisha Live on our website, uh, when we have the recording of the session, right underneath it, there will also be the, um, the source sheet. And also, may I so, just briefly give a shout out? It's so it's uh, very difficult uh, teaching in South Bend to, uh, to uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a unique privilege to have my parents in the audience. Uh, and so I want to thank them, Tifered Banim Avotam. Right, the crowning glory of children is their parents. So thank you in particular. Spotlight them so everyone can see them. They're probably <laughs> quelling anyway. They're probably quelling. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you again. Uh, I just want to mention a few things. Uh, we continue our spring program tomorrow at 1 p.m. with the final class in the series, uh, Divrei Dever, Responsa and Plague Time with Rabbi Zakir. So I hope to see you there. And also tomorrow evening, we have our second PU team of Shavuot class with Dr. Uh, Laura uh, Leiber. Uh, you can find out more information as well as the registration links uh, always on our website at www.drisha.org classes. Thank you again, Dr. Novik and his parents, and thank you to everyone who attended, and we hope to see you soon, uh, either tomorrow or sometime soon at one of our upcoming uh, classes here at Drisha. Thank you so much.